MakeReal specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. During the COVID lockdowns of recent years, online technology became practically the only way of delivering learning, but a long road has brought us to such a place. This episode covers the theorists, inventors and entrepreneurs who pioneered the technology delivery of learning beginning in the early years of the 20th century with the mechanical teaching devices of Sidney Pressey and B.F. Skinner. Welcome to this episode about technology delivery. I'm here with my co-host Donald Clark as usual. Trade shows are a regular and inevitable feature of the learning space. And if you happen to visit a conference or exhibition this year, it's pretty certain you will be exposed to, not to say bombarded by learn tech vendors and edtech vendors touting the miracle of individualized, personalized learning delivered by technology, and also the blending of machine delivered and human mediated learning. Might surprise you, however, to know that both of those things go back a long way. We're getting used to this on Great Minds on Learning to the very beginning of the 20th century, in fact, and that's what we plan to cover in this episode, the history, development, and perhaps a bit of the future, almost inevitably, of learning technology delivery, starting with the earliest teaching machines of Sidney Pressey and B.F. Skinner, and on to the marvel that is the internet, which now delivers a huge and ever-increasing amount of learning experiences. So, Donald, can you first give us an overview of this important group of theorists, inventors and innovators and entrepreneurs that you've marshaled for, for this episode? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for as long as we've been a species, we have, we've had learning technologies from paintings, you know, go back to the... Altamira and Chauvet 50,000 years ago. And then we went through other technologies like painting in those caves, obviously, writing, printing. And then some interesting stuff we're going to tackle today, which is really what people normally, people normally think of those as tools, you know, like uh, uh, our, our ancestors used tools, which is slightly different meaning from technology. When we think of technology, we tend to think of things from the mechanical age onwards almost, you know, as a thing, an instrument that helps you achieve something. And so today we're going to be talking about some incredibly important people who have really put in place the infrastructure, the technology that allows us to learn both formally and informally. And of course, we, we're going to start with a, one name that everybody's heard of, and that's Skinner. We're going to start with these things called teaching machines. So in the early 20th century, we had these mechanical devices by another person, before Skinner, the first teaching machine builder was a guy called Pressy. So we'll deal with Pressy and Skinner first, because that was the first sort of catalyst for all this. But of course, they were killed stone dead by the electronic age in the 19th, but in the 1960s and 70s, the computer starts to come into place, especially in the 80s, the personal computer. Then, of course, the internet. So we'll be dealing with the king of the internet, 
Tim Berners-Lee. And then we'll move on to some really key figures in learning. You know, you may not think that Bill Gates is a key figure in terms of learning technology, but who hasn't used PowerPoint? Is there a learning conference where people do not use PowerPoint in their presentations? Is there an L&D department that isn't soaked in PowerPoint culture? I doubt it. And of course, Word, as well as us to write stuff. And then we'll deal with Steve Jobs, of course, who comes along and really revolutionizes the whole concept of a smartphone. He puts the smart into the phone, the iPhone, but also things like we're doing a podcast, for example. But, you know, the word podcast comes from the iPod, and it's the first device that really delivered audio in a sophisticated way. So the second big figure, of course, the founder of Apple. And then we'll move on to Martin Dugamas, because that's an entirely different piece of technology, which is really... I could have picked all sorts of people here, but Martin was specifically responsible for Moodle, which is just a worldwide phenomenon in terms of the learning management system, another infrastructure that allowed us to deliver learning. So I want to get a flavor for how technology, you know, has scaled learning, given us more access to knowledge and learning services and resources and other tools. It's been an accelerator because it gives us scale and it allows us to archive stuff it's given us increasing access to different media. It's no longer just text, of course. We're speaking in audio. We can see each other on video. Uh, that will move into 3D environments with VR and AR. And, of course, the big one, AI. None of this is possible without Tim Berners-Lee, the big bang of the internet, Gates giving us all those tools and the big operating system, of course, uh, which is, was the foundation of the internet in those days. And then Steve Jobs with smartphones, Doogie Mass uh, with LMSs. So... Let's go on that journey and we'll, we'll concentrate on tech. So let's start at the very beginning, a very fine place to start. Dull, B.F. Skinner. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sidney Old Pressey, 1888 to 1979, and B.F. Skinner, 1904 to 1990. Uh, Sidney Leavitt Pressey was born in Brooklyn, New York in 88. As I said, he received his PhD in psychology from the University of Chicago. After teaching at several universities, he joined the faculty of Ohio State University in 1921. He remained at Ohio State until his retirement in 59. Pressey's best known for his work in the field of automatic teaching machines. From 1915 onwards, this is you know, the beginnings of the First World War, he developed the first yeah. automated teaching machines, which were designed to provide drill and practice items to students. He had to pause it a bit, but after the war, he uh, started up again. Uh, his work's considered to be the forerunner of today's online learning platforms. Now, Skinner, B.F. Skinner, was an American psychologist, behaviorist, author, inventor, social philosopher, professor of psychology at Harvard until his retirement in 74. He was one of the leading public intellectuals of his time. And we've covered Skinner in some detail in our episode on the behaviorists, so I won't give any more of his bio. But it's his experiments with teaching machines we're concerned with here particularly. Donald, tell us about the teaching machines these two men invented. Were they precursors of the learning systems all organizations now have, or just historical oddities? Well, in a sense, they're more oddities than precursors, because hardly anyone has ever heard of uh, Pressy's teaching machine, or indeed Skinner's, to be honest. So I think the causal link is tenuous. 
But they are fascinating, and hopefully we'll start to, to unpack the reason for my my fascination for them, certainly. If not, uh, hopefully this podcast will expose that. Yeah. They actually had some precursors. It's very interesting, at the end of the 19th century, you had some really interesting people. There were hundreds of patents for sort of hand-cranked machines. You know, that was the machine age, the, the Victorian okay. age. And uh, some of them worked actually rather well. There's a really interesting one by... Another Skinner, Halicon Skinner, no relation to BJ at all, who, he patented an automatic spelling machine which would scroll with pictures and was turned using a hand crank, one picture at a time, and then you had keys and 26 letters in half. But it was a very, very sophisticated thing, but it didn't, it wasn't quite a teaching machine in the sense that you want input and output as feedback and progression through a learning process. Okay. So there were some really interesting early early examples of this. Another guy called Aikens, who in 1891 patented uh, another spelling machine on matching lessons. Now, what he did, interestingly, was he used Thorndike's theory on transfer. Uh -huh. So we're start, we, the, uh, the only reason I'm quoting these is we start to get people who are looking at learning theory, which is what our podcasts are about, yeah. in order to build technology to deliver to learners. But let's go right into uh, one of my favorite people, really, Sidney Pressy. Oh, nobody's ever heard of him, and you're absolutely right. Comes up with his idea for a teaching machine in 1915. It completely went to pop because of the First World War, but he manages to patent it in the 1920s, 26, I think. And then he was a cognitive psychologist. He hated the behaviorists. He had no time for Skinner in his school. He was a very early cognitive psychologist who thought that the inner mind was all in learning. And that was the big difference. There's a nice contrast between these two. When we come to Skinner, we'll see the contrast. But he was the first to build one of these machines that genuinely delivered content in terms of input, takes input, and gives you output, which is meaningful in terms of feedback. So it's the first real teaching machine. That, that There's no doubt about that. Okay. Now, it wasn't like Skinner's machine, which was much more behaviorist, in other words, giving you positive messages all the time, reinforcing learning like an animal, like a rat to move you forward. The Pressy's first machine, the, there was two machines here. The first machine had a, like keys for four options on a multiple choice question, okay? So you press a key for the right answer, the results are actually stored inside the machine and delayed and shown on a little counter if you get it right or wrong, okay? So it presents content, presents questions to you, it takes the input and gives you feedback about your progression and scoring, the three conditions for a teaching machine, which I think is right. Now the second machine, however, it was a really beautiful, it looked like a little typewriter, really, with five keys this time, one to five. And it had a little window showing the number of questions that had been asked, another window showing you the number of questions that you pressing the right keys had got correct, okay, as you go through. And then you continue until you get the right answer, and then the next question appears. So there's a sense of progression there, then reflection on why you got it wrong. Right. So he starts with testing and then moves into learning with his... Yeah, it's it really is the relying on the testing effect, what's now knowing is known as the testing effect. It was very much... I mean, Skinner's one had more presentation of content than than uh, Pressy's one. But Pressy, nevertheless, it wasn't just straightforward multiple choice. It was quite content-driven. You know, they weren't like, what is the capital of Scotland, Glasgow, Edinburgh, or Inverness or something, you know? It, it, they were quite sophisticated questions. But what I liked about Pressy was his arguments for this machine. And his first big argument was that it saves teachers time. And it was, if you can get people to learn on their own, what a great thing, because you can concentrate as a teacher on the people, on the poorer kids or, or the, the, the kids who are struggling who don't have the same cultural support at home and so on. So he, he had a big social, you know, 
brain behind all this. Mm. And it gives immediate results. The learner's not waiting around. You know, you do a test and you have to wait a week before the teacher marks it whenever they get around to it. And you could also reset this machine so that it was ready for the next student and so on, okay? And it, it had about 100 questions in it in total, but he thought it was just a marvelously efficient thing. And you know so I think he's right. Actually, now that if we jump now to chat GPT uh, four and so on, these are just massively efficient things. Google is a massively efficient search engine. Duolingo is a massively efficient language learning topic. If you look at the Khan Academy GPT thing, it's massively efficient as a tutor in mathematics. So I think his dream has been realized now, you know, over a century later. Yeah. But he was on to, he was he was fundamentally right, and it's saving teacher time, accelerating learning. And he, I think the important thing about Pressey is he justified all this through cognitive psychology and had very sophisticated arguments to back up his theory. He also had a very interesting idea, John, called, it was called adjunct auto-instruction. I can never remember that. Yeah. Adjunct auto-instruction, which was his definition really of blended learning. Yeah, slightly patchy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, I mean... I, he thought that you had to combine this programmed learning through his little machines, uh, you know, with human teaching, but in a sophisticated way. He never, ever saw the machines as knocking, uh, you know, knocking teachers for six. He always thought that the machines were something that were a bridge between the learner and the teacher, and that the teacher would, in a sense, support the student in using the machines. Mm. Uh, I think that maybe maybe that argument's got weaker now, but uh, that's important. Uh, you know, he did actually come up with that phrase, which is exactly what blended learning means now. And that was a century before people really came up with the phrase in the late, you know, 1980s when it first hit the learning world. So he, this, this, he was a very, very smart guy. And everything that came from him was from a learning perspective, not the mechanical machine or technology perspective. It's interesting, though, that he, as well as being a theorist, he was an inventor. I mean, he had a hundred patents. That's right. Yeah, but he did have difficulty. I mean, the thing didn't catch on. He had difficulty no. getting somebody to manufacture it and yeah. market it and all the rest of it. And so did Skinner. If we, we move on to Skinner's version of it, I interviewed uh, Audrey Waters, who wrote a book about both the teacher called Teaching Machines, and um, both of them had awful problems actually trying to get it manufactured. They did. That's right. The funny thing is that the era when it was just coming into the era of mass production, as it were. But people couldn't, they couldn't make that connection between the mass production for a cognitive task. <laughs> you see what I mean, it was all very well with, you know, like washing machines and cars and so on. They were mechanical devices that performed a mechanical function. People could not get their heads around the idea of a machine that would perform a cognitive function. So they always struggled with that. And to be honest, they, they it never quite got I mean, they were selling these things well in the 50s and even in the early 60s, but they, it never took off in the way that they thought it would. Yeah. But, but Skinner, as you say, was very, very different, I think. So tell us about Skinner's take on it. What, what, what did he add? How different was his? Yeah, so he, he comes, it was much, much later, remember, because Skinner comes along with a teaching machine called the Glider in 1954. So you were into the early 50s when, when Skinner applies his particular theory, of course, which is behaviorism. Now, Skinner has this interesting set of letters between him and P Pressey and acknowledged that Pressey had invented the first teaching machine. That's really important, you know, because uh, there's a chronology and a, a status here thing here. And I think Pressey deserves the claim of being the, the originator of this, this particular approach. But Skinner claimed his was a teaching machine, not a testing machine, going back to the question you just asked, John. He thought that he had 
in a sense, captured behaviorism in this uh, rather clever bit of technology. And he, again, he writes about it in a lot of detail in a book called Teaching Machines, and it was written in the 50s. And in another really good book called The Technology of Teaching, which was written in the 1960s. So these guys are not just building things in their garage, you know, with bits of old typewriter parts. They're thinking about the learning theory and the pedagogy behind it. Now, Skinner's machine was a bit different. The first version, again, there were two versions, a simple and an advanced. The first one, you physically move figures or letters to respond to the question asked, and the machine, it knows whether therefore you've responded with the right answer. If it's right, the next question comes up, but it doesn't come up until you get it right. That's the behaviorist thing. If there's no correspondence, you're just cleared. It clears the machine, and you're ready for another try until you get it right. You cannot proceed unless you've had positive reinforcement. That was Skinner's model. That was different from Pressy. His second one, which you can actually see in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, the second one was really an amazing bit of kit, really. And it had a big roll of paper to the right of the questions. And you could actually write through a little window using a pen and pencil. That's where you wrote your answer. And you pulled a lever to see a model answer to see if your answer matched the model answer. So you're comparing what you had written with the correct answer, which was inside a disk on the machine. Okay, you're not, uh, and then you're not allowed to change your answer because the machine punches a hole in the question, if it, making it marking it as correct. So, it, so that question wouldn't appear again as the presentation disk goes round. So you're progressing through questions, but only when you get them right. Now, the questions on the disk were quite cleverly constructed by Skinner to just have that very gradual gradient or ascent through the knowledge oh. so that you move on to something slightly more difficult and then slightly more difficult again. So this, the learning is very structured, and almost like micro learning, small steps, yeah. deliberate practice. You, and you also got hints and prompts to, to maximize your success in this thing as well. So it was a sort of personalized machine. It was beautifully built with this little window where you could type in and the, the disc that rotated one at a time inside all mechanical, but beautifully constructed. So would you, it, it's personalized learning, they called it individualized learning at, at that time. Yeah. Would it count as adaptive learning by our criteria? Yes, only adaptive in the very primitive sense that they were, they were trapped by the mechanics of the adaption. You know, it couldn't shoot off and find something else. The remedial, it wasn't a sort of if, then, and anything could happen on the back of the then. <laughs> you could do that in very simple code terms on any computer. They couldn't do that because there was a limited number of options, but there were options. But I think, in a sense, I think you asked at the beginning there, were they the real, you know, was there a causal link? Were they real precursors? Now, Audrey makes, I think, the false claim that, you know, oh, well, you know, we're just doing what they did, and, and therefore they were almost to blame for all this. Thing. You know, not, not really. You know, nobody, nobody I know who was involved in high-end AI adaptive learning had ever heard of Sydney Pressy or looked at the machines or Skinner's machines. I don't think there is any causal link because there was so much time between then and now. And, of course, we had the whole computer revolution in between that we're just about to talk about. Oh. So... Uh, and also, I think, you know, I think we have to be really, there also tends to be a, a bit of sneering going on about Skinner, you know, and all that false, stupid stuff about him locking his daughter up in a box, which never happened. You know, a lot of it's mass. We, we've discussed this in another podcast. But people have a big downer in behaviorism. But I think as we showed in our podcast, there was a lot of very interesting stuff that's very useful to this day in that world. Modern behaviorism, as we called it in that podcast. <laughs> So 
So shall we take a, a leap now from the mechanical devices and then the age of room-filling computers to <laughs> the invention of something we're using at this very moment? And our next theorist is Sir Tim Berners-Lee, born in 1955. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, OM, KBE, FRS, FRNC, FRSA, DFBCS, RDI. I think he's got more lists on his than anybody would come to far. And you would as well if you had invented something as useful as the internet. He invented the World Wide Web, in fact, to be more accurate, in 1989, which is the year I was married. He's also the director of the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, which oversees the continued development of the web. Born in London in 1955, he studied at Oxford, where he received a degree in physics. After graduation, he worked at, at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research. In 89, he proposed the idea of a global information system that would allow people to share information and communicate with each other. Great idea. He implemented the first successful communication between a hypertext transfer protocol, HTTP. Ever seen those letters, kids? Client and server via the internet in mid-November. Berners-Lee is a passionate advocate for open access to information. He believes that the web should be public good that is available to everyone. He has worked to make the web more open and accessible, and he has also worked to fight against censorship and surveillance. Donald, as a historical event, people in the early years of this century compare the internet to the spread of the railways. Then they started comparing it to electrification. Then they started to run out of metaphors that would sum up <laughs> its all-pervasive nature. The wheel, maybe. Maybe it's that important. What's been its significance for learning? A big one, obviously. Yeah, I think as significant as writing, uh, or certainly as significant as printing, because it, it basically democratized and globalized self-publishing and printing. Uh, that's what it does. It prints as many copies as you want for next to nothing. Gives you access to all that accumulated culture and knowledge and books and so on. And this intermediates the whole business. No more game as everybody is a, is a content producer. That's right, yeah. There's an interesting story I've got about Tim Berners-Lee. Might, might start with it. So a friend of mine, Ian Ritchie, in Scotland, uh, had a company called Owl. It was a very early hypertext company who was doing all this stuff. And he got a phone call from Tim. He knew him personally. And Tim said, could you... I've just invented this thing called the World Wide Web. Literally, <laughs> literally, this was the call. And Ian did a TED Talk, if you want to see your friend. Ian Ritchie's name, you look at the TED Talk. And he said, I need something like um, a, a, a thing you can browse the stuff on. You know, you use the word browse even. And he wanted Ian to write a browser for it. And Ian famously said, I'm sorry, I don't have the time. I'm too busy. <laughs> and, and Ian in his TED Talk says, you know, there are not many people who have turned down a several billion dollar opportunity on the back of a casual phone call, but he did, in fact, do that. Yeah. And, uh, so Ian went on to be a very successful business person in this area anyway, but it didn't really matter in the end. But yeah, it was an interesting episode. because, And it captures that early experimental thing here because, you know, in the early days, the World Wide Web was all about, well, the internet was sharing academic knowledge and collaboration. It's all yeah. about learning and research. People forget that, that the whole thing was built on learning and research in these institutions, both defence and in the early university system. Yeah. Rapnet, so whole, of, um, whole model of kind of documents and links. Yes. Has, yes. It, it, it's a bit like the scholarly communication model of, you know, articles, yeah. citations. A link is, in a way, a bit like a citation. And and the higher education people had a big influence on it at, at the beginning, the way the way that it was structured. They thought it was going to be for them. Yeah, the way it was structured was key to it, really. So he, you know, he has the idea in 1989. I think it was 
it, it, the paper redistributed in 1990, but the real big bang came in 1991. And on that word structure, John, so he has the, the three things that give it, you know, get, make it sing is a bit like, the, I like the post, you know, posting letters analogy here. You have HTML, which is the letter, you've written your letter in HTML. You've got HTTP, which is the delivery of your letter, a bit like the postal service, and then URLs are the postal address to which your letter goes. It's sort of that simple. <laughs> but having come up with those three, he later thought this was a big mistake, by the way, these three standards, because it, it simply, it's a crippled, it simplified everything too yeah. much. Nevertheless, that is the invention. It's a set of protocols as much as anything else that allowed people to communicate with each other and exchange files with each other. That's what made it sing. And, and in the end of the day, that's what has given us all as learners, as teachers, unlimited access to an unimaginable body of knowledge. On the back of it came YouTube, Wikipedia, Duolingo, ChatGTP, all these things we experience now. But without Tim bringing it all together in the World Wide Web, not the internet, remember, but the presentation layer on the internet, then uh, this wouldn't have happened. And it happened very, very quickly indeed. I remember, because I was there, John, <laughs> running a company, and I remember how quickly we had to adapt from using compute, what was called computer, CBT, computer-based training, which was on standalone IBM computers using laser disks for storage. We suddenly had this thing called the internet on dial-up, but it buoyed every single business on the planet had to change. Yeah. I think it's a moment similar to the moment we're going through at the moment with AI. I think we'll see exactly the same thing suddenly our whole relationship with knowledge and learning has changed. And that's what happened in the 1990s. Is it worth talking at all about the, the semantic web, which was a kind of, yeah. you know, not that many people know that much about it, but it, it yeah. was, I, I think Berners-Lee thought this was going to be the next development of, of the web. People like Wolfram got very excited about, but, yeah. about it, but there was always this question of, it involved people tagging a lot of information for it really yeah. work. And that, no, nobody had the time to do that uh, until AI came along. So, Correct. You're, you're spot on there because Tim Berners-Lee has been banging on the semantic web drum for a very, very long time. And uh, and he was very keen on the, on open data. So, so you know, semantic web really is a big data problem. And mm. he, he pushed for open data, especially in the UK, but the Open Data Institute, 2012 and so on. And he and Wolfram. But... Interestingly, the problem got solved. You're right. The big problem with the semantic web, which so that you know the way search traditionally worked was page ranking and a sort of detailed search of the actual words themselves, as it were. But now semantic, I mean, if we look at current AI systems, you look at chat GTP, that's the one in the air at the moment. What you have is a huge nexus of captured data, which is mostly words. But and, but also images, that has been training a system to produce things called parameters. Now, the parameters, let's say they often talk about 175 billion parameters in chat GTP. What does that mean? Well, actually, a parameter is not two words. If you take two words, you could say, like I've got behind me, you could say, oh, book and page. Those two things are related. They're quite close semantically. The parameter is the relationship between the two. They're very close, so that parameter, that weighting, technically you would call it, is quite high. Now, what you do is go and search that. The semantic search is searching for those semantic relationships, the relationships between the words. That's what semantic search is. And it's a huge breakthrough. Semantic search is much more sophisticated. So if you're in an organization and you've got all these PowerPoints and documents uh, and videos even, 
and you want to search for them. Traditional Google type search doesn't work that well. It, it's crippled by its mechanics. Semantic web, semantic search works much, much better, but it's been very difficult to do, in fact, impossible without AI. Yeah. We're now coming into an era where this whole world of search, this is why Google is under such threat now from these newer semantic models. They're much more sophisticated in terms of their mathematics. Mm. But I mean, going back to what we did have, and that, you know, from the 90s onwards, you had the Cambrian explosion of LMSs in the early 2000s. That happened. We'll talk about that with, with Martin Dugamas later. So you had the learning management systems, or VLEs, as they tended to call them in universities and educational establishments. But you also had Wikipedia. You know, it's just an amazing phenomenon. Suddenly, a crowdsourced knowledge base. Where did that come from? Wipes out the encyclopedia industry completely and utterly. It's not, it was toast, really. Yeah. And then it, we've moved into learning experience platforms, learning record stores, all this stuff, and all the, the AI that's hitting us now. But I think, you know, Tim Berners-Lee continued with this semantic thing. He knew that the original protocols that he had put in place were fundamentally flawed and limited and was always pushing to do the next big thing around semantic search and using more sophisticated AI techniques to do it. Yeah. Now, I, this is really interesting because in terms of what we're talking about, and that's pedagogy, you know, learning, I think actually this type of newer technology has, has created new forms of pedagogy. And by that, I mean the relationship is no longer like between me and Wikipedia. I want to know something about, I've just come back from the Jurassic course, Coast and Dorset collecting fossils. I want to know something about bellamites and ammonites in the Jurassic period. I find it on Wikipedia, great. That's a search, find, retrieve model. Yeah. The new pedagogy is, now I want to chat to somebody about this. I, I want some really sophisticated stuff. You know, what? how did how did they survive? What were their predators? How, did they sit in the bottom of the ocean? Did they float around? I want to chat and ask them questions. It's more like driving a car than being on a bus going at set destination. Mm -hmm. And I think this new pedagogy, what I call pedagogy with an AI in the middle, I think this, is, this will change the world radically. And Tim Berners-Lee understands this. He understands that the semantic web, more meaningful dialogue with knowledge is what makes what he was ultimately after. Yeah. So the first version of search couldn't really, it was all about words and matching words. It couldn't yeah. understand the structure of a sentence. Correct. It could, it, it, you know, the word semantic literally yeah. mean, meaning meaning. And yeah. so it would need a, a human actor to come along and say, this is a noun, this is a verb, this is a proper noun, so capitalize it, all that kind of stuff. No one had the time to do that. Long yeah, time yeah. AI. AI can yeah. understand the structure yeah. of the sentence and so on. So it that that is semantic. So yeah, there's an interesting problem come up in the back of that. So that's absolutely spot on what you said there. The uh the, the tagging was never going to solve the problem because it's it's you know an infinite task. You you know you need so many human beings to tag the sheer bulk of knowledge that it was always going to be a, you're in a hiding to nothing. Nevertheless, a similar problems come up with semantic approaches of the uh, the large language models that we just discussed. So people think that it was just trained on a whole load of data. You just bung the data in and wait, and this big machine suddenly chat GTP appears. This is far from the truth. In actual fact, what they had was. I think called RLH, which is reinforcement learning with humans. They had a whole lot of humans in Kenya and all sorts of countries actually training chat GTP as well, but not to find things, only to rank the output to make it 
to put guardrails in place so it didn't behave badly ethically and didn't come up with uh, you know nonsense and so on. But there was also there's human input in the training of of these semantic models as well. So that's never gone away. It's just that once you've got the humans training the system and it gets to a certain level of competence, it's forever competent. We saw the big leap in performance between Chat GTP three and Chat uh, GPT four. God knows what chat GPT-5 is going to be like, but there will be just as much of this human training in there. So human beings haven't gone away quite yet. Hold your horses there. We're going to take a step back before we go yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With our, our next theorist. We hope this podcast ups your knowledge about learning. But did you know learning podcasts, that's audio training created according to evidence-based principles, is a powerful and fast-growing medium. Assemble You is an audio-first provider with a ready-built course library to help your people improve productivity, leadership, well-being, and more in their downtime. Assemble U also creates audio courses unique to your company or institution. Try it free today at assembleu.com slash greatminds, all one word. And our next theorist, uh, I was looking at pictures of him, I seem to recognise him from The Simpsons. <laughs> Bill Gates, born 1955, same year, interestingly, as Tim Berners-Lee, and same year as, as Jobs. And I think they were both born a year before us. You know, the, yeah, that's the right. Giant <laughs> technology make you feel a bit inferior when it comes to your life accomplishments. <laughs> you less than me, I think. Hey, they both dropped out of college, though, John. I think we got to the end. <laughs> so William Henry Gates III, to give him his full name, is an American business magnate, software developer, investor, author, philanthropist. He's co-founder of Microsoft Corporation. Gates is one of the richest people in the world and has been criticised for his business practices. Um, I should point out, actually, that pushed for time, I let Bard write this, this intro. <laughs> Uh, kind of Google's answer to... I wondered when you started doing that, John. <laughs> I know, it's shameful, shameful laziness. Um, you know, Bill Gates heavily involved with uh, ChatGPT uh, of Microsoft and, you know, has big investment in it. Bard is Google's versions of it, so it doesn't seem to give as glowing a, a version of Gates as some of the other AIs. Uh, this is an interesting development. Anyway, I'll plow on. He, he has also been praised for his philanthropy and his work on global health, as well as being criticised. Born in Seattle, parents were wealthy and highly competitive professionals. His father was a, a well-known lawyer. His mother was on the board of uh, financial institutions and charities. And think very competitive. Uh, you had to win at pickleball or you, you got forfeit. Gates wrote his first software program at prep school where he was bullied. In fact, that makes him the archetypal nerd, I suppose, attended Harvard University, but dropped out after two years. Uh, that's a familiar pattern to start Microsoft with Paul Allen. Microsoft, of course, one of the most successful companies in the world, and Gates became one of the richest people in the world. Since retired from Microsoft, but is still involved as a chairman emeritus. Uh, also a philanthropist, as we mentioned, um, has donated billions of dollars to various causes. Interesting global health has donated money to fight against malaria, AIDS, other diseases, got involved with COVID and the WHO. Gates has an IQ of 180 and is a fan of the board game Scrabble. Donald, can you spell out what makes him a great mind when it comes to learning? Yeah, I, I liked your comment about, you know, that's like nerdishness, where he's the, he's the quintessential nerd, I suppose, isn't he, Bill Gates, in terms of the history of technology. And he wrote, he wrote this little... That, He's, we're going to discuss his interest in learning and education, which is quite deep, I think. Uh, but he wrote this famous line, one of his rules, which he used to trot out when he went to schools and universities. And one of them, rule number 11 was, be nice to nerds, 
the chances are you end up working for one, <laughs> which turned out to be quite true, actually. You know, there's a lot of people working for these people who are working uh, in adjunct services associated with these companies. But, you know, why is he important? Well, you know, let's think about it in the learning world for a moment. You know, think about a learning and development department and how often they use PowerPoint. It is arguably the primary tool in classroom training. The primary piece of technology is probably PowerPoint and Word for actually you know, designing and planning stuff. So, and then of course, Excel. So along comes this college dropout, as I say, incredibly ambitious, incredibly focused, who strikes lucky because he writes the first operating system and gets uh, the people who build the, the first computers to adopt it. So he has captured the market early on, but he was smart enough to see that what really mattered was not the technology, but how you used it. And of course, because he had come up with this little suite, there was another suite called Lotus Notes and stuff before it. There were competitors. That was from IBM. But he knocked them to one side by focusing on really good functionality. And here we are to this day, still using Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, and indeed, Microsoft may very well, because they are the main investors in OpenAI, may well have this complete Lazarus-type resurrection as the sort of sexy AI company knocking Google to one side. Who knows? I have no idea if that will happen, by the way, but it's possible. But there's a downside to this, of course, which is the famous line, death by PowerPoint. So one could argue that pedagogically, this was like the invention of the blackboard that we discussed in one of our podcasts. PowerPoint then became this sort of crutch for people, became this sort of vehicle through which they would bore people to death rather than training themselves to be good presenters, good teachers, good trainers, whatever. Yeah. And of course, there's the technology teams, which is blowing people's minds because it's folding in this very sophisticated technology around, uh, you know, it automatically summarizes for you, it will translate things in real time, all that sort of stuff. I think the great thing about Gates is he has had a fundamental interest in the use of technology for learning for as long as he's been around. But this really started in the year 2000 when he gave up his CEO position in Microsoft. And then he went into that philanthropic mode that a lot of these billionaires do, you know, and he starts the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And boy, do they splash the money out. I was involved in a $2 million project, you know, just little me alone, it touched me and allowed us to build a product that was very successful around adaptive learning, got sold to Cambridge University quite recently. So I got I was in the inside of that organization over in, uh, in Austin in Texas. And they did good things and they were very smart. They weren't fools, you know, they weren't just splashing the money around. They guided it forward. They were really keen to solve fundamental problems like how do you stop college dropout? How do you use technology to really help people in the in what was called then the third world or developing world? Yeah. But I think he also, you know, what I liked about him as well, because I, I particularly like one aspect of him, because he's big on a thing called big history. So the big history ideas don't imagine that history just stopped, you know, started with the Romans or something in Britain. He thought that history should be taught, and I really believe this is right, as a much bigger concept back to the Big Bang 30.7 million years ago, the deep time concepts, star formation right through to the Earth solar system and, you know, evolution. I think we should know the geological times and then come into more written post-writing history, which is what we normally regard as history. But he also... He used to have these big bouts of deep reading, especially in economics, which has guided his view of the world. And he's a big fan of uh, Thomas Piketty's book, which I've got behind me, uh, the big thick book called Capital. 
And a lot of these philanthropic ideas came from that book. If you read Thomas Piketty's book, it's got a lot about education and how it's all gone badly wrong <laughs> by basing itself on scarcity. In other words, you know, it's really is the university system really is fundamentally a non-diverse elitist thing. Mm. And he had all sorts of uh, ideas like Piketty about switching the tax system and so on. But let's put that to one side. It's very political. Education for Gates is the big leveler. If we can get education right, he thought then we can certainly solve the problems of poverty because it lifts poor people out of poverty. I think he's wrong in that. I don't think he solved poverty with education, but that was his big idea, that economics can be revolutionized by very cheap and accessible learning. Yeah. I think that's far from true, to be honest. But uh, yeah, that, that was his big thing. And you've got to applaud him for making the effort. And he's still there today. He wrote just this week a brilliant little article spoiled by mentioning learning styles. So let's be clear, Bill knows nothing about learning theory. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was a very good article because he recognized that we had just moved into the age of AI. So he called it the age of AI. But he thought that education and learning would be its number one beneficiary. The net benefit of AI would be mostly in that area. That's quite perceptive because I think it's true. And therefore, let's not write this guy off at the moment. He has the money, the power, the intellect to help us get to do that, to avoid the pitfalls of AI being corralled into, you know, some sort of weird dystopian capitalist future, as it were. And I think that would, I don't think that's going to happen. But the net beneficiary here is learning. It's interesting the way that he's used his money as an investor and the early days of adaptive learning, the Gates Foundation, the Gates money was um, really investing heavily in that sector when a lot of other people just couldn't be bothered to look at it. And that's correct, yeah. And he stuck with it, you know, and the, the good thing, he's a good scientist. He understands lots of these projects failed, but he wasn't put off by that. He knew that that would happen. He had enough money to ride out the failures and then pick up on the successes. So let me give you an example. So Khan Academy, uh, one of the big supporters of Khan Academy was the Bill Gates Foundation. And Khan Academy has just, I don't know if you've seen the recent work they're doing on the back of ChatGTP. It is extraordinary. And they're doing it, they've basically got this incredibly sophisticated tutor that will teach you maths by identifying what mistakes you make. It will teach you any subject. You can basically go in and ask you any subject you want at primary school, secondary level, or college level, and it will start teaching you stuff. It sort of blew my mind when I saw just the video. And that's that's Gates money. And also, of course, we, we, sh we should remember something I said earlier, that, that it's really Microsoft who have... Really, it's the close relationship with Sam Altman and the current CEO of Microsoft, but Gates is clearly behind this. Uh, they were the first, Elon Musk put a billion in, but it was quickly followed by Microsoft with another billion in OpenAI. And hey, presto, we suddenly have ChatGTP and Teams. Microsoft look as though they're a real player here yeah. all of a sudden. And uh, I think Gates is the puppeteer in this. You know, this is a guy who's been around, who's seen it all. Who has, who has an intellect and a deep interest in education, which is why he wrote that article, I think, pointing towards education as the big beneficiary of AI. And in the world of um, organizational learning, workplace learning, we should also mention Viva, which is Microsoft's yeah. entry into the learning systems yeah. market. And they are doing some, I, I was talking to some people at Microsoft the other day, they'll do some very interesting things in bringing together, they have a lot of modules to Viva, um, uh, there's Engage, gets a bit confusing, which does which. There's Engage, there's Viva Learning, but there's also um, 
answers and topics which get into knowledge management. So they're doing an interesting thing to bring together kind of HR um, and skills, learning, knowledge management um, in a way that makes them all instantly accessible. And of course, teams. So it's a something still to watch under Gates. It is. Everything's up in the air all of a sudden with this AI stuff, as, as I, you know, I predicted and thought would happen. But I think the interesting thing about Microsoft is the, it, it was like Bill Gates writing that article and then in the first couple of paragraphs, he, he talks about learning styles. They don't really get the learning thing. You know, they get the technology and they've got all these features, but they don't pay enough attention to the human dimension of learning, which is why they've never really made big inroads there. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably likely to continue. Uh, other people are more likely to come up with a really good innovative product in the learning area in a way that Microsoft will never it's the same, you know, as we're going on to talk about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs understood the absolute necessity of the clear and exciting user-customer experience. Microsoft never got that. I mean, for years and years and years, you know, that really terrible interface, you had to click on the start button to close it down, you know, and tell weird things. They never really got the people side in the way that Steve Jobs did, the interface design side. Uh, well, I come to this as a, an Apple fanboy with uh, a child, a daughter who um, absolutely abhors Apple products. And there's a lot of ding dong at the dinner table. Uh, <laughs> day. Oh, it's such a shame. Apple unboxings are so boring. You just take them out of the box, you plug them in and they work. Whereas Microsoft, you've got 50 different kind of clicks and logins for absolutely everything you want to do. <laughs> Steve Jobs, 1955 to 2011. He's the man who arguably has done more than generations of ski instructors even to popularize the polar neck sweater. And of course, he's um, about more than that. Stephen Paul Jobs was an American business magnate, industrial designer, investor, and media proprietor. He was the chairman, chief executive officer, and co-founder of Apple Inc., member of Walt Disney's company's board of directors. I always forget that, following its acquisition of Pixar and the founder, chairman, and CEO of Next Inc., which was kind of his company in between Apple and then leaving Apple and then going back to Apple, as we know from the film. Jobs is widely recognized as a pioneer of the personal computer revolution of the 1970s and 1980s, along with his early business partner and fellow Apple co-founder, Steve Wozniak. Jobs was born in San Francisco, California, and put up for adoption. He was adopted by Paul and Clara Jobs, neither of whom had been to college, in contrast to Gates's upbringing, interestingly. Jobs attended Reed College in Portland, Oregon, uh, before dropping out for two semesters. He then travelled through India in 74, seeking enlightenment on the hippie trail and studying Zen Buddhism. This is our generation, absolutely. Didn't we both do that? No. Jobs returned to the United States and founded Apple in 1976 with Wozniak. Apple's first product was Apple One, a computer that was designed and hand-built entirely by Wozniak. Jobs was responsible for marketing and sales. Interesting, that. Apple's second product was the Apple II, released in 77. Huge success. And it helped to establish Apple as a major player in the personal computer market. They're one of the most profitable companies in the world. They, they kind of invented, in a way, that the products you could lust after. And the way that yeah. computers are always rather boring gray boxes. Apple gave us things that were lifestyle choices and, and appealed to all sorts of um, desires in the human psyche, I think. Steve Jobs was a vegetarian for most of his life, but Donald gets to the meat of the matter. Why is Jobs important to learning? 
he was the very opposite of Gates, really. And although they both, he didn't come from a very rich background. He came from work, a working class background. His father was a sort of mechanic, but that that was actually one of the reasons for for Steve Jobs' success is that he, as a very young child, was given this workbench and a bunch of tools, and he would build things and take things apart. This mm-hmm. is what gave him that sort of proactive, uh, you know, build things attitude towards life. And they were quite poor. They had to start make do as it were. So very opposite of Gates in terms of background. And he really did drop out. And I was, he hated the, the school he went to in Portland, the, uh, the college he went to in Portland. And he, he actually wrote about this, describing it as a complete and utter waste of time. He thought it was just, you know, they were just going through the motions, churning out uh, uh, students, giving them a degree at the end. So he just dropped out. He just could not see any additional value in staying there. So he was very different from Gates. Gates dropped dropped out because by that time he was on the path to being a billionaire and he knew it. But this is the device man, but it's more than a device man. It's not just, it's, it's very interesting you talked about, you know, devices you could lust after. Very good book called Spend by a evolutionary theorist called Jeffrey Miller, who talks about consumer products being part of our state you know it's a status symbol basically we buy an iphone because it's cool having an iphone it's not necessarily because of its functionality and i think he played to that big time with of course not only the iphone but the ipod ipad the tablets of course and the iphone but the iphone in the education of course the ipad was massive through all these horrible tablet projects that was something i wrote about extensively i think the tablet is not a great educational device uh but the iPhone, the smartphone, is the area in which Apple and Jobs really did excel. And of course, the iPod podcasts are literally was mentioned this earlier. Podcasts are literally named after the iPod, and uh, you know, so in a sense, their technology has enabled what we do now. No end of people listen to this podcast on their on their mobile phones. If you're in the gym right now or walking your dog, it's um, something we got used to. But so much part of podcast listening is the- yeah. And, and mobility and that's really something that jobs helped to give us in a, a great way that's right and another thing that is often forgotten about in relation to learning of course is the app store because these these are the app kings i mean they've been criticized that for this you take they take their 30 percent cut and people like uh, epic games and so on have taken them to court on this i don't think that'll last much longer their monopoly of that apps market and you'll see facebook possibly coming in with fat uh, with an app store as well but i think you know it wasn't just the beauty of the devices, it was the beauty of the interfaces. So yeah. I uh, I was a PC person for most of my uh, adult life, swapped over Apple, and I don't think I would ever go back to a PC again, mainly because of the smoothness, the, uh, you know, the ergonomic advantages of the interface and the software on Apple. Uh, but I do not have an iPhone. I have a Google phone because I prefer the artificial intelligence features of that phone, and it is one-third of the price. So I'm not going to fall for the status thing. I've got a very uncool phone, a Google phone, Google Pixel. So I think there are several things there, you know, revolutionizing the hardware, massively expanding and reinventing the smartphone market to be truly smart and deliver whatever you wanted, especially learning-type content. Uh, but also podcasting, which is a big deal as well, and also the app store. And he continued to be a bit of a skeptic on the use of technology in schools, despite the fact that schools started buying iPads by the by the hundreds of thousands, which turned out to be a mistake. He was quite highly critical also. He was politically critical of state schools. He didn't like the state system. He thought it, he was one of these sort of 
almost right-wing nut jobs who believed everybody should have a voucher and fight for places in private schools. So I'm not, I'm not too sure that he, he had a sophisticated political brain in that sense, but he certainly had a brain for designing, launching, and marketing product. And I don't dismiss that because without that, you don't get the mass consumer adoption, which has allowed us to use this technology for learning. And that really did, did matter. That's why he's such a towering figure in this world. Did he have any kind of uh, sense of learning theory, do you think? No, but you know, it's interesting because instinctively, it was like that little story about Wozniak, which may be an urban myth, but you know, when Wozniak came with the first apple, I used the first apple, we had the very first apples in our office, and it had a little prompt, which used to be a little sort of, a, you know, like sharp V on its side. And uh, <laughs> it was Steve Jobs who said, well, why doesn't why doesn't it just say hello? And, and Wozniak went, why would it want to say hello? It's a computer. And of course, that one sentence is what Apple is about. Of course, it has to say hello. You're dealing with human beings on the other side of the screen. You want to be welcomed. <laughs> and I think instinctively, without any learning theory, Steve Jobs really understood the cognitive side of computing, that people, this was subsequently proved in research by Nass and Reeves and many others, that we treat computers like other people. Yeah. That we think they have a sort of, you know, there's a sort of animistic fundamentally evolved belief that it's very smart, it must have a sort of bit of life about it. Now that has suddenly been brought to life with this AI stuff we're talking about. When you're sitting, as I have for weeks on end now, using uh, chat tools, chat GTP and so on, it really is extraordinary. You really do think you're in dialogue with something very real, especially if you do the chat bit, not just type in a sentence and get a block of text, but if you continue chatting to it and explore a topic, and so I think Steve Jobs understood that it was a dialogue, a dialogic experience between the user and technology in a way that Gates and the other tech companies have never understood, which is why people just love using those devices. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, and so he, he designed for that. It wasn't a matter of physical ergonomics, but cognitive ergonomics that he understood deeply. Yeah, and there is a thing of cognitive load that, you know, um, cognitive load theory that uh, although computers are annoyingly interruptive all the time with, you know, um, constantly asking you to kind of log in and provide details yeah. and all this and batting out of the way, which is kind of uh, distracting. The Apple experience in general is much more foregrounding what you're trying to do. And it, it, it's like the TV executive that realizes that, you know, a streaming service is about the content, you know, television is about the content. Yes. Similarly, with with computing, we just want to get the stuff. We want to watch the movies. We want to listen to the podcasts. That's right. Drop down to the operating system and kind of reprogram that and DOS. And you know, I had so many arguments over the years with with Windows enthusiasts who would say, "Yes, but you can't get down to the operating system." Yeah, I never can. want to get down to the operating system. I just want the thing to do what I want it to do. You know. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to dive into the engine in my car. I don't want to ever have to do that. I want it to take me places. Uh, that's right. It, it's a very sort of techy, nerdy view of the world, isn't it? But there's something about the frictionless interface that's very interesting about Apple. They, they try to reduce any form of interference. Now, what's tended to spoil it, funnily enough, has been sort of weird regulation. They want, you know, these consent things, managing your cookie pop-ups. Steve Jobs would have hated that with a vengeance. 
And of course, it's stupid. Imagine if you were watching television every five minutes and it came up with a little pop-up before every program that you had to click to get rid of. It would drive you bananas. And it was actually the subject of a really horrible piece of legislation that came out of the EU. And then suddenly we've got consent. Was cons we never read any the consent. We never read them. It just annoys the hell out of people. And hundreds of millions of productive hours are ruined by some stupid idea about consent pop-ups, whereas it should have been more generalized. And that's the danger when people who don't really understand computing in the way that Steve Jobs does starts to regulate. And it doesn't actually solve any ethical problems at all. It just annoys people. Yeah. And he understood that, that yeah, reducing cognitive load mattered. Also that you had to just minimize the effort by a user to get to what they wanted to get to. That was the fundamental thing in Apple. We're getting a bit general now. Let's get now to our next theorist. I think a bit of a version of something which is going to be very close to the heart of our L&D listenership. Yeah, yeah. So Martin Dugimas, is that how you pronounce the name, Donald? I always say Dugimas because in Scotland there's lots of men called <laughs> Dougie or Dougie, you know, that's a common term in Scotland, but I may be completely wrong in that, so you're asking the wrong person. I think Dugimas is probably right. Martin Dugimas, <laughs> born 1969, a bit younger than, than the rest of us, and um, still among us. Martin Dugimas is the founder and CEO of Moodle an open source learning management system, or LMS. Ever heard those initials? And in fact, the most widely implemented LMS in the world. He was born in Perth, Australia, not Scotland, in 1969. In his school years, he benefited from distance learning via plane dropped materials and shortwave radio uh, from a school a thousand kilometers from his home in the desert. So yeah. distance learning was right there at the beginning of his education, interestingly. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Computer Science from Curtin University and a PhD in Internet-based education from the same university. Dugia Mass is a passionate advocate for open education and believes that everyone should have access to quality education. He has said that his goal is to make education available to everyone everywhere. Now, according to uh, Bard, I've had arguments with Bard about this. Dugia Mass is a Beatles fan. In an interview with EdTech Digest, I did ask hard to track down the source for this. He said that he was inspired to create Moodle by the idea of a system that would allow people to learn together in the way the Beatles created music together. Of course, we've all seen that on the um, Beatles documentary recently. They kind of saunter yeah. at 10 o'clock, smoke a cigarette, sit down, jump a bit. I wish we could learn like that. Donald, don't let me down. Is <laughs> something, is he the sun king or a real nowhere man? For this. Yeah, I had the song uh, Come Together, right? Now that came into my head there, as you were mentioning that. Yeah, Dougie, I really love Martin uh, Dougie, and I know Martin, I've met him several times, and uh, I, I, can, I can never talk about Martin without giving him a little Martin Dougie uh, anecdote. So we were in Rwanda, of all places, right in the middle of Africa, and I, we had both did our conference thing. And we went, we, we were in a very small group and we got up before dawn and went to the Virunga National Park and climbed up the side of a very steep volcano after getting severe warnings from the guards about never running away from the gorillas we were going to see. So there were only two rules, don't run. And secondly, don't get within 20 metres of them. When suddenly, after climbing through this horrific jungle, 
we found ourselves by accident right in the middle of a family of gorillas. I mean, right in the middle. We touched the silverback, and we have this on video. Martin is sitting right behind the silverback, and I'm taking the, the, the video. And uh, at one point, I stood up and stood on a piece of bamboo. It snapped, and the female behind me came past me and flapped me with her hand and, <laughs> onto my chest, <laughs> which freaked me out, I can tell you. But... Uh, that was the last time I saw Martin, actually, <laughs> in Rwanda, halfway up a volcano, being slapped by a, vo a, a, a gorilla. But back to business. <laughs> what I liked about uh, Martin's approach to life, really, was this commitment to open source. Because he had, to, you know, he went through some struggles in this. People were always trying to buy the company, and he had a very famous legal battle with the Blackboard, who are pretty, you know, have no. Believe me, that's not a company with much in the way of ethical principles. But the uh, he won that battle, but he constantly had to fight to get this project off the ground and keep it going. Because one might imagine that an open source community is a very friendly and easy thing to run, but actually it's not, you know? It still is a sort of hierarchy. It's got a central, it needs to be centralized. You've got your core developers, but you've got all the people who are paying you and they have high expectations that they pay royalties back to the trust. But you've got to keep that going, you know, with all plugins and extensions and all the great things that Martin and his team have done over the years. But the proof is in the pudding. This thing is universally used and liked because it's open source and it's cheap. So you're, you're not really paying for the product, you're paying for the service and the, the help you get to keep it going. Uh, he also, the thing I like about Martin Olson, I wrote about him in several of my books because I think it shaped him really, this notion of being educated in the middle of the outback in Australia, you know? It's literally, he was, I think it was a thousand kilometers from the nearest school. Uh, he was getting these books and things dropped from airplanes and, you know, the usual radio ham type stuff that was uh, around and still is School of the Air, I think it was called. I wrote about that extensively because I think it shaped his thinking. He, in a sense, had to learn on his own using the technology of the day, which was radio. You know, he wasn't in a school with other people. And I think that shaped his thinking for the good. And I was he, he certainly did well. I mean, look, look at what he's achieved in life. An interesting thing about learning, it's interesting learning theory. I admire him also because he took that seriously. And although I, I would differ from him in his really strong belief in social constructivism. Which we covered last episode. Which we covered, yeah, we covered in the last podcast in a lot of detail. But he really was a big fan of this. And I'm often a bit suspicious because... You know, when, when I look at instances of Moodle, and another one was the Future Learn software, they all, always said that these things were built on social constructive principles. And then I look at the content, it's all pretty didactic. You know, it's it, I, I didn't see much signs of it. But that may not be the fault, fault of Martin Dugamas or, or people like Mike Sharples, who are very good in learning theory and desperately wanted that to happen in Future Learn. I think just the product drifted. The actual use by academics in higher education is pretty didactic. They lecture for a living. You know, they're not very good at applying the sort of sophisticated scaffolding and feedback and all those things we discussed in the last podcast about, you know, Bruner's idea of scaffolding and so on. So, but I admire his uh, hootspan trying to get the get that going. As I say, he described himself, I think, as a benevolent dictator of Moodle, and I think that's he was honest enough to know that that was necessary. I thought it was a great phrase very honest thing to say, because that's what he had to do, not only to get it off the ground, but to keep it going. And it's still with us today, still doing a magnificent job. And who can deny that the world needed something other than the full milk LMS, uh, which costs a lot of money and may be suitable for some of the bigger companies, but certainly not in education.
Yeah, it's interesting. Moodle in, is very popular in education, kind of as is. Uh, in the workplace learning environment, it has been the source for a lot of other LMSs, which yeah. uh, come out of it, like the Tatara, wasn't that based on? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. I like that it was kind of like um, Kiddio Boys took Moodle and skinned it and started off Tatara or that's right. The uh, Totara essentially was a corporate skew, uh, was based on Moodle and remained an open source corporate LMS with a number of people contributing and is still going today. And other people like Learning Pool, of course, forked from that to create what is a really sophisticated set, uh, set of uh, software now, uh, and uh, which is folding in AI and all sorts of things. So, you know, from those humble origins uh, that Martin kicked off way back then, some amazing things have it's almost like a tree in which various branches have come off and forked and created wonderful things. Well, I was going to mention the term code fork, but perhaps we didn't want to get it down into <laughs> Got to be careful with that word. Yeah. <laughs> Cause battles and so on. So he didn't invent the LMS, did he? No. Yeah, that LMS work, you know, that goes way back into the, the, the depths of history, you know, Plato systems and all that early stuff that, which we discussed. But uh what, what he did really was build, remember he had to build this thing for an educational system in such a way that it could be utilized and, and have a life of its own in an open source environment. And that was no mean feat really, because as the thing progressed, uh, the problems around, you know, some of the problems were obviously how can, how can you afford to spend all, really good money on getting the interfaces and the themes right? But eventually in time, the themes started to come along. Customization was always a problem in it, but again, those problems started to be solved. It took time because it was a group of people with limited resources and money, but he's always avoided taking the money and running and also taking the money and becoming what it was never designed to be, which is a sort of corporate money-led entity. Yeah, along with that. Last... And I admire him for that because not many people can stick that out and, and he has. We need to close it up now and to sum up i'd like to ask a question that it, it, it's come home to me during this episode that you know kind of sit sitting here surrounded by um apple products the ipod me two screens um all, all my apple plugins and and god knows what else uh we're talking through the medium of of, of the internet we're, we're obviously very heavily involved in this stuff i'm an apple fanboy uh, up to a point, you're uh, a, a tech optimist, a tech enthusiast, and very enthusiastic for for AI. Mm -hmm. Perhaps step back a bit and say, okay, the internet um, and the developments we've been talking about, technology delivered learning, have have been massively important for mm -hmm. learning and education. Are, is there another side to that? Have they done a bad thing for it? I mean, I've heard people say often that uh, a downside of it is that technology tends to give you a proxy of which it, it claims is the solution of the problem you ask for, but actually it doesn't. You know, you ask for learning, it gives you a lot of learning content, thousands of courses on a on an LMS. Yeah. Are there are there kind of downsides to the tech delivery of learning that we we have to be careful of and have to be aware of as we move forward? Yeah, that's a good question, John. I think thinking back to what we've just discussed, if you go back to Tim Berners-Lee, for example, or even before that, Pressy and Skinner, 
they were working within the envelope or the technological limitations of the day. So, so Skinner and Pressy had mechanical devices that looked like little typewriters, you know, they, with discs and, and, and rotating wheels and hand cranking and so on, uh, because that was the machine age. So they did their best with what was available. And then along comes Tim Berners-Lee. And of course, he did his best with the early internet. And what he had to do was invent those three standards, the HTTP URLs and HTML and the presentation layer, which is a problem, because that gives you inherent limitations. I mean, we're still using HTML5 to this day. And that's what Tim Berners-Lee didn't want to happen. He thought it would evolve much quicker. And in a sense, that is a good question because, yeah, that proxy question, the learning and development world has got trapped in an LMS and content model, especially the content side that's very flat, very graphics, cartoony, multiple choice question, mechanical and structured, and in my view, over-engineered and often Disney-fied. And I think that's been uh, you know, a furrow that we've been plowing for nearly 30 years now. Suddenly we have this breakthrough now and this is why I'm I'm not a technological determinist, but I don't believe it's all about the learning, not about the technology, because the technology, for example, search comes along and revolutionizes our relationship with knowledge. We've discussed that. Give us access to Wikipedia. Who doesn't like that and use it all the time? Or Google Maps. Who doesn't use that when they're in the car? I mean, who wouldn't want that? And it's all free. So we sometimes forget about some of the wonders, you know, I was on the, you know, on a, a Zoom call to somebody in Boulder, Colorado this morning. Still, and I, it didn't bother me, but you know how amazing is that? We're speaking to each other for free from one side to the planet to another, and we can see each other. So it's given us some wonderful gifts. But in learning, I think we've got a bit, a little bit fossilized on the flat stuff. Now, the AI thing has blown that apart because suddenly we've got dialogue coming in the co-creation of knowledge going forward. Socrates would have loved this. Plato warned us about the danger of just printing, writing, reading, and that we no replacement or substitute for thinking. And I think the, this AI stuff is suddenly handing us a great gift of thinking software. Not only do we, we used to have just teachers and learners, now we've got very smart software that's learning and very smart teachers, AI teachers or tutors that, are help, that help us learn. This is the new era that breaks out that flat stuff. I think another thing that the technology is going to bring along, and we can only do these things when the technology is invented, so we can't blame people for just having flat LMSs and content. That's all we could work with. Another thing is moving from 2D to 3D, because although I'm seeing you on a 2D screen, I'm sitting in a 3D room, and I, my work is in a 3D world, and I speak to other 3D people. And I think we're looking now at a shift into 3D technology, uh, through AR and VR, indeed, Apple look as though they're going to be bringing out their AR glasses this year. Uh, the VR thing is starting to get some purchase. Of course, there's a whole metaverse proposition on the back, back of that. I think it'll be a more gradual drift from 2D to 3D. But I think that opens up the notion of learning by doing in 3D worlds, like flight simulators have been around for a while. Can we not do as flight simulators have done in in flying? Could we not have real 3D learn by doing assessment in that context as well? Do we really have to spend 20 years of our life just reading and producing text? Does that really prepare us for life? Or are we just drowning in a sea of text in a sense and over-egging it? So I think, I think in a sense, the technology enables pedagogy in a way we never really truly understood before. You know, it frees us up from old limited pedagogies because we can deliver so much more. And AI will do that. The drift from 2D to 3D will do that.
So that's why this is important, this topic, you know, technology. The technologists, the big beasts that we've described here, have worked, have really expanded, worked with the tools as best they could to deliver learning. But we're now moving into another another set of big beasts we'll be discussing in the next podcast. I know people like Sam Altman uh, and so on, who are really recreating the learning world, which is why Bill Gates said we are now in the age of AI and it changes everything in education and learning. Yeah. The next episode will certainly um, lead on directly from this one. We'll, we'll be recording that live in a room with 3D people. In Den Bosch. Den Bosch, in, yes, in another country. Uh, at the beginning of that, we'll probably have to do a previously for this episode, if this was a <laughs> set, which indeed it is. But for this episode, um, I, I think we have to wrap that up there. Thank you very much, Donald. It's been fascinating for me. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed that, John. That was uh, made me think a lot, that one. It was great. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you're a fan of these podcasts and want to support us and get exclusive member benefits, go to patreon.com forward slash learninghack. 